Planetary Radio is Public Radio's only weekly series about space exploration. I'm Matt Kaplan, and I hope you'll join me as we explore Mars, look for life in the universe, and fly through the rings of Saturn. We'll talk with the men and women, scientists and dreamers who are guiding us to a future beyond Earth. And don't forget to enter our weekly space trivia contest. That's Planetary Radio, Mondays at 5.30 p.m., right here on KUCI. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor. She sits on the advisory board of the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in our county. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hour, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, and lots of other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS TV show a couple years ago called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy privacy. Good evening, Mari. Good evening, Lloyd. You know, we've talked on this show about the no-fly list, and in fact, we even had the privacy officer of the Transportation Security Administration on this show trying to find out how people can get off the no-fly list. Well, tonight we're going to talk about the no-buy list. Do you know what that is? No. This is even scarier because you can't figure out how to get off of this thing. There's no rules. There's no regulations. Of course, it isn't very good, very uh, well uh, protected for the TSA either, but this is even scarier. And in fact, we're going to speak tonight with the author of an incredible report that I read, and it's called the OFAC List, O-F-A-C, How a Treasury Department Terrorist Watch List Ensnares Everyday Consumers. Now listen to this. This is, comes from the executive summary, and it's enough to get you really scared. An increasing number of private businesses such as banks, mortgage companies, car dealerships, health insurers, landlords, and employers now check the names of customers or applicants against a U.S. Treasury Department terrorist list. So the Office of Foreign Assets Control, the OFAC, list of suspected terrorists, drug traffickers, and other specially designated nationals runs over 250 pages long and includes more than 6,000 names. Now, many Americans who are on this list face stigma, and they aren't even really terrorists. And the government has been encouraging a wide range of private businesses, even maybe me as a lawyer or or a, a beauty salon, anyone, and she's going to, you know, our guest is going to talk about this, um, to look at these screening lists and not to deal with them. In other words, you can't buy a house, you can't, you can't buy a car if you're on the list, because this would literally be against what we're going to be talking about is certain uh, executive orders. So there's few safeguards. There's no training for businesses. They don't know what's going on. And now we know that TransUnion, which is one of the three credit reporting agencies, is actually compiling this list and giving it to businesses. And consumers may not even see it on their credit report. And ChoicePoint, who we we happen to love, uh, the privacy officer who's been on our show, Carol Dubatiste, but we're going to be talking with somebody else from Choice Point in a few weeks and find out they're putting together lists that we don't know about. So this is a pretty terrifying stuff. And I want to tell you about the person who we are going to be interviewing about this who has done an incredible amount of research. And that is Shireen Sinar. She is an attorney with the Asian Law Caucus up in San Francisco. She works on racial and ethnic profiling, employment discrimination, and other civil rights and worker rights issues with a particular focus on the South Asian community. 
Prior to joining the Asian Law Caucus, she served as an Equal Justice work, Works Fellow with Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights of San Francisco Bay Area on the post-9-11 discrimination by employers, financial institutions, landlords, and private businesses. She's the author of the 2007 Lawyers Committee report entitled The OFAC List, which I just told you about. She served as a law clerk to Judge Warren J. Ferguson of the 9th Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals in Santa Ana, right in Orange County down here. And she is the co-founder and board and board member of the Bay Area Association of Muslim Lawyers, which received the State Bar President's Pro Bono Service Award for Distinguished Service in 2006. She is a graduate of Stanford Law School, and her article, Patriotic or Unconstitutional, The Mandatory Detention of Aliens Under the USA Patriot Act, appeared in the Stanford Law Review in 2003. You can find out more about her and the Asian Law Caucus at asianlawcaucus.org, and we are so thrilled to have you with us, Shireen. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on and for the generous introduction. Well, you're generous to all of us working on these issues. This is scary stuff, Shireen. I'm telling uh, you. I Well, I'm sure you know that. That's why you wrote this report. <laughs> That's exactly right. And we put out the report because we found that, uh, as you mentioned, a growing number of everyday consumers and everyday transactions were being flagged as potential terrorists by private businesses. And uh, it was not, in fact, that they were actually on this watch list maintained by the Treasury Department, but actually just that they had a name similar to someone on the list. So you're actually talking about individuals who have no connection to terrorism, to drug trafficking, or to any of the other uh, reasons for having this list, but just because their name happened to be similar, they ended up having transactions denied or at the least delayed um, at a range of private businesses. Yeah, you had a whole list of celebrity names that were similar or that had one part of the name was on the watch list, like Cameron Diaz <laughs> and, and, and Alberto Gonzalez. And oh my goodness, it's, it's unbelievable. Right. The list includes many, many very common names, especially Latino and Middle Eastern names, but really names from, you know, from every ethnicity. And uh, in some cases, what we're seeing is that people are having problems merely because part of their name, like a first name or a middle name, matches an entry on the list. Uh, so that gives you a sense of just how widespread this, uh, this problem can potentially be. Right. Now, one of this, you had a lot of uh, different scenarios in here, real-life stories of what happened to people. And this was real scary. The first one that you had about Tom and Nancy Kubani just trying to buy a house. And here they are trying to buy a house, and then they're told that they can't buy the house. It's right. And the, I think the, the, what's so notable about Tom Kubani's experience uh, is just the fact that uh, it was his middle name alone, Hassan, uh, which is as common in the Arab world as a name like, you know, Tom, Dick, or Harry. It's really that common. And his credit, credit report linked him with the son of Saddam Hussein purely because of that middle name. Apparently the son of Saddam Hussein's alias was Hassan. And uh, as a result, the Kibanis believe they had a, uh, trouble getting a home loan. And we've had other experiences as well where individuals, uh, they, their name is just similar to part of a name on the list. And as a result, they've had problems and faced a lot of stigma at car dealerships, um, at banks, and in one case, even at an exercise company where uh, a couple was told that they couldn't buy a treadmill because the husband's first name was Hussein. It, it, it's unbelievable. I know we've, we've had um, people call us about the TSA no-fly list. In fact, one of our neighbors, just a kid, 15 years old, can't get on a plane without going through a tremendous hassle, and he, oh, they always lose his baggage. But, you know, at least he knows now and uh, what a little bit of what to do, and they can contact TSA. So we're going to be talking about what do you do if your name is similar. But let's go back and kind of explain really the origin of the OFAC list and, and the laws behind it. If you could start and give us that background, because I don't think people know about this list. Sure. The list was created not by a single law, so it's not the case that the Patriot Act or one of these laws that probably many of your listeners have heard of uh, was responsible. It's actually a compilation of names from a variety, more than a dozen laws from the 1990s and to the present. 
One of the laws that uh, was passed uh, shortly after September 11th it was actually an executive order by the president um, that designated a number of individuals as suspected terrorists and uh, banned financial transactions with them. Uh, now, obviously, the purpose of that order was uh, incredibly important to curtail terrorist financing, but the order was written in such an overbroad way that essentially all sorts of businesses you know, across every uh, sector of the economy that have uh, no nexus with national security or with financing of terrorism uh, were, in a sense, encouraged to check this list. So I think the first concern about this particular law was the fact that it was so overbroad. So, you know, literally by its terms, you know, if you're an ice cream shop or, you know, the corner deli, um, you're encouraged to check the list or you can get in trouble with the law. Uh, so that that's one of the problems. And the second problem is the fact that uh, the, there were very few safeguards put in place to protect civil liberties. So if you're going to have a system where you're encouraging people to check the list without those safeguards, it's, it's really a recipe for civil rights problems. So let's go back and help me understand a little bit. Now, with, with an executive order, now that did that come out of, like you were saying, a series of different laws that were, were enacted to um, help protect from terrorism? So we've got, even way back with, when Clinton was in power as well, right, the, the, some of the, uh, the, the lists started. Is that correct? That's right. And it, it's not even just laws having to do with terrorism. So, for example, in 1999, uh, Congress passed the Foreign Narcotics Kingpin Designation Act, which was a law that expanded sanctions against international drug traffickers. Um, and names from that program are now included on the OFAC list. Uh, and there was an executive order after September 11th that's responsible for a lot of the names associated with uh, foreign terrorists. So essentially, it's a whole range of laws. Some were issued by the president as executive orders. Others were passed by Congress. But these have all led to more names being put on this list. Now, what about the Privacy Act that says that there won't be any secret lists <laughs> you know, <laughs> and secret databases? I mean, how does that interface with these, like the TSA list, and, the, and especially with regard to the OFAC list that you've been studying? Well, the government claims very broad national security exceptions for a lot of its watch lists. So it says that they're you know, simply um, outside the realm of the Privacy Act. Uh, in this case, this particular list, the OFAC list, is actually not uh, secret in the sense that you can look at it on the Treasury Department website. Um, in fact, I can give your listeners the, the web address if they want to check, uh, check the list and search for their name or someone else. Uh, it's just treasury.gov slash OFAC, which is O-F-A-C. Right. And so you can check your name on this particular list. Uh, it doesn't mean that there's a transparent process for finding out how people are put on the list uh, or for disassociating yourself from the list, but this particular list is publicly available. Right. But if you are uh, assumed to be on the list because you have a middle name that's similar or a last name that's similar or a first name that's similar, it won't be on that list, correct? In other words, if, if my middle name was Hussein, right, mm -hmm. um, then I wouldn't necessarily be on the list, the 6,000 6, names on the list, but I, I might still be, um, like you were saying earlier, I might still be stopped from buying right. a car or something, right? That's absolutely right. So, uh, you know, we actually find that very few people in the U.S. are on the list. Uh, we don't have an exact number, but it seems to be really just a handful uh, so it's, it's almost everyone who's on the list is uh, you know, living somewhere internationally. But uh, it, so, you're, you know, the individuals who are having problems are not actually on the list. It's their name that's being associated. And I think what's so challenging about that is that if you're not on a list, you can't get off the list. Right. And that's, so, so looking you know, that's at the that government's list. argument. Right. So looking at that list, if, if uh, I may not be on that list, but I still may have problems when I go to buy a car or I want to open up a bank account or a securities account, right? That's right. So and that's, exactly so how, what, that's what I'm saying. So how... How is it the only way I would find out about that future problems is through my credit report or a choice point report, or how, how would I find that? That's actually one of the problems. In some cases, what we're concerned about is that people who are being denied transactions, for example, say a landlord doesn't offer you an apartment and you simply think it's because someone else might have um, you know, come in whom they offered it to in the meantime, um, you may not actually know that that was the reason that you were denied 
um, a rental or a purchase. Uh, so in some cases, you may not know at all. For other people, they're told when their name is flagged, when they're at a business, and a salesperson might tell them, your name's on the list, we can't do business with you. Uh, and in some cases, the salespeople do know that uh, there are false positives, that people may not be actually on the list, and they'll say, we need to know your date of birth so we can compare you to the person on the list. In other cases, salespeople don't even know that um, they need to verify additional information on someone, or there may be on a, na a name on a list that doesn't have any other identifying information. And as a result, if it's just your name that matches, they end up denying the transaction. Right. So, Shireen, let me ask you something. So, let's say I go in to buy a car. Um, is one of the first things they're going to do, besides getting my credit report, are they going to have another access to a database like ChoicePoint that they're going to put my name in and, and it'll check it? almost like a, a credit score or something? Is that how they do it? That's right. It actually works both ways. Some car dealerships will just look at your credit report, and because increasingly credit reports, like a TransUnion report, have this information printed on it, that, that will give them um, you know, both your financial history as well as OFAC information. Others will do a separate search through a separate computer software program uh, that uh, enables them to check the OFAC list. So, so let me see if I understand. So if there is a software program that they're using, whether it's through the credit bureau, TransUnion, or someone else, will, will it come back with possible, will it say something like possible threat because it's a similar name? Is that how it, how do they know? I mean, do, they don't have any duty to look further? Sometimes it's just the alert itself that comes up. So it won't have explanatory information about is this person actually uh, the individual on the list or not. So, for example, the TransUnion credit reports we've seen just print the entry from the OFAC list without any kind of explanation. So what would it say, for example? <clears throat> so, for example, it would say, uh, you know, Saddam, <laughs> I'm going to give you the example that was in... Uh, the, in the report, yeah. Yeah. Um, it would say, you know, Saddam Hussein, uh, Ali Saddam Hussein al-Takriti, uh, and, you know, provide some additional information on him. Um, you know, if there is a date of birth or place of birth, that would might be included in in the entry, and so it it may be uh, a couple of lines worth of information on this individual. But what it won't say is, uh, you know, this person may not be on the list. Make sure you check their information. Oh, it doesn't no, say there's that. There's no actual explanatory information printed right. with the alert. Well, you know what? Even if there were, they may not bother. They might just say, you know what, I don't want to take the time. It's not worth it. I don't want to get in trouble. I just will, won't deal with this person. You That's know? exactly right. And I think that there, that risk is especially acute uh, in a political climate where, you know, there is, as it is, a lot of discrimination against, uh, you know, people from certain ethnic groups, especially people from the Middle East. And so, you know, you can imagine a situation in which a landlord says, for example, you know, I don't know if this person is or isn't on the list, but I don't, I don't want really to take a chance. Deal. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, in the process, they've just denied an apartment to um, just an ordinary person who just happens to share a name with someone on this list. Let me ask you something. Has the GAO, the Government Accounting Office, have, have they done their own research on this at all? To my knowledge, the GAO has not done a study on this particular list. In fact, one of our recommendations on the report is that there be greater oversight by Congress and by you know, other government uh, watchdog agencies. They have done some pretty extensive surveys of the, the no-fly list and some of the other watch lists that are being used by the government. Yeah. Would you be in a position to ask Congress to have the GAO, you know, the, the Government Accounting Office, do some kind of oversight on this at all? Because that, they seem to be great. You know, I mean, that's the GAO, at least with regard to identity theft and, and other issues on credit and consumer issues, have been quite good. I've been real surprised. Um, <laughs> and I shouldn't say surprised. I've been really happy to see some of that. that that's what I thought of right away is that there needs to be a GAO report to Congress on this. Right. And, we, you know, we have asked for congressional oversight. I think um, having the GAO or other, the inspector general or uh, other watchdog uh, institutions take a look at this would be really important. Um, we were pleased that shortly after this report came out, um, Senator Durbin, um, in a congressional hearing with the uh, Secretary of the Treasury, asked questions to the agency about uh, what measures they're putting in place to prevent civil rights violations. And uh, the answer, as well as uh, 
much of what we've heard from the agencies that they recognize that there's a problem. Um, we're not quite clear on how much that they're, they're doing to actually solve it. <laughs> Great. Let me introduce you again. We're speaking with Shireen Sinar. She is an attorney with the Asian Law Caucus, and she uh, prepared a report that was fascinating that I that I read about a month ago or so, and I thought I have to have this brilliant woman on. It's called the OFAC List, How a Treasury Department Terrorist Watch List, watch list Ensnares Everyday Consumers. We're talking about a no-buy list. In other words, people are being denied a house, an apartment, uh, investments, etc., anything, right? I mean, really, any kind of economic opportunity, um, unfairly, when they aren't even on this watch list, but their name might be similar. So can you give some real-life examples? I know we talked about the one with the, with the mortgage. Can you give some other examples uh, that, so people could really understand how it could happen to them? Sure. Uh, here in San Francisco, uh, a U.S. citizen, a woman who is uh, originally from Mexico, went to buy a car at a local car dealership. And everything went fine. She found a car that she liked. The sale was almost complete. They, in fact, handed over the keys. And at the last minute, they told her, um, sorry, our computer is frozen. We can't, we, you know, we can't sell you this car. And so she was surprised, but, uh, uh, you know, let it be. She went home, called the next day, and they said, we still can't sell this car to you. And so at this point, she became alarmed that there was something out of the ordinary. And so she went into the dealership to find out what the problem was. And when she, uh, when at some point they told her that uh, it's it's because your name is on a list, and she protested, saying that's not me. Um, you know, I I have no connection to narcotics trafficking or to anything else. And they began accusing her and asking her, "What are you trying to hide? Why are you not being cooperative?" <sighs> and so she felt incredibly stigmatized. Not only was she not permitted to buy this car, but then she was subjected to a sort of inquisition right. by a salesperson at a car dealership. Um, ultimately, she, you know, several days later, she just decided, you know, I, I don't want this car. This place doesn't deserve my business, and went elsewhere. Um, but this type of experience is fairly common. Uh, another experience I mentioned a few moments ago involved something even more ordinary, which is a treadmill. You know, a couple trying to buy a treadmill from an exercise company was told that they couldn't make the purchase until the husband was cleared. And so they literally had to wait 72 hours uh, while they checked him. And the only reason they were told is that his first name was Hussein. Ugh, unbelievable. So we've got some names here, like um, Muhammad Ali is close enough to be on the list, George Lucas, Paula Abdul, Jennifer Lopez. Then we talked about uh, Alberto Gonzalez, but I love this one, Na uh, Nancy Patricia D'Alessandro Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi is close enough to be on this list. So so you had said before that if you go to uh, www.treasury.gov slash OFAC, O-F-A-C, you could see if your name is on there. But the truth of the matter is you may not be on there. So so you've, you could find out if your name is on there. But if you keep getting uh, stonewalled when you go to buy a car, what can you do? One thing we would advise people is that if you feel or suspect that this may be a problem for you, uh, request a copy of your credit report. And this is not a complete answer to this because, unfortunately, what some credit reporting agencies are doing is not putting on this alert on credit reports that they send directly to you, but they're providing them to the reports they provide to businesses. So the next step is that if you do apply for a loan, um, and you know, particularly if you're denied, um, but even otherwise, you can also ask that business to show you the copy of the credit report that they received from the credit agency. And that copy may have an OFAC alert if you have a common name that, that uh, might be associated with somebody on the list. You know, for years, i got to tell you, absolutely, I've been testifying in Congress regarding credit reports with regard to identity theft as well. And, Shireen, I have said that the consumer should be provided an exact copy of what the commercial entity gets because even for victims of fraud, there are things on there that they don't understand why they are having problems, and it doesn't appear on the consumer report. It only appears on the commercial report. And so this is another important reason why we should be able to get copies of whatever the, the commercial report says, and why shouldn't we? 
I mean, the, the, the reality is, is that they have so many merged files that they don't want to show us that stuff is appearing on our credit reports for, for commerce that, um, that includes other people's stuff. Mm-hmm. And this is another a perfect example of it might not, it might be uh, blocked and you might not see it because it's hidden. Mari, that's absolutely right. And I think it's particularly stunning when you think about the purpose of the fair credit laws that were enacted. And Congress realized that many Americans were losing out on opportunities um, merely because credit reporting agencies were providing incorrect information or outdated information and so forth on their credit reports. And so the purpose behind those laws was to you know, provide for transparency so people had a exactly. chance to change these mistakes. And you know, unfortunately, that's not happening. Exactly. So have, has the Asian Law Caucus actually filed any lawsuits in these cases? Is somebody actually filing under, for example, if, if this isn't showing up in a credit report against TransUnion, are they filing? I thought I saw something, actually, an FCRA case for not revealing this OFAC stuff. Am I correct? Or Yes, you are, actually. Uh, this is a case that uh, private lawyers in Philadelphia actually recently um, secured a judgment on against TransUnion, and that case involved uh, a Latina woman. Her name was uh, Sandra Cortez, who uh, again tried to buy a car, and her credit report flagged her as being uh, someone else who was on the OFAC list. And uh, you know, the the car dealership threatened to call the FBI. You know, it was a, a very, an ugly situation. Uh, embarrassing. And, oh my yeah, goodness. Yeah, incredibly embarrassing. Uh, and you know, for months she tried to get this information removed from her report. The credit agency continuously refused. Uh, and ultimately relented only when the lawsuit went forward. Uh, so she uh, she received uh, quite a judgment uh, in compensation for her suffering as well as punitive damages because I think the jury really realized that if, you know, if this can happen to her, it can happen to anyone, the credit reporting agencies have to be held responsible. And, you know, they have a duty to correct. So if you uh, dispute some uh, some aspect of your credit report and say, this isn't me, you know, whether it's fraud or whether it's, you know, an OFAC list uh, entry, um, they have to investigate within 30 days. And if they can't verify it, then they have to remove it. So if her real name wasn't on it and they didn't and they couldn't verify that that was her and they kept it on there, then they are in violation of the Fair Credit Reporting Act. And that's that must have been what happened. Am I correct? Well, th- that's absolutely right as far as you know our position on it. But surprisingly, the credit agencies have actually disclaimed any responsibility. And uh, both in that case as well as uh, uh, we were assisting, the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights was assisting the Cabanis in trying to get uh, that OFAC alert off uh, Tom Cabanis' credit report. And initially, they, they really resisted. Uh, and it, it, you know, they essentially said, it, it's not us, it's the government. Uh, you know, and you know, we don't, we're not responsible for uh, f- for removing this information. So, if anyone is having this pr- this problem, you know, to your listeners, I, you know, I would say that you should most certainly protest and dispute that information um, and call them on it. But uh, you may find that initially the, the credit agencies are reluctant to actually do it. So, if it's a if it's a government list that has it, but but you can actually see that at that website. Okay, if you can actually go to the website, uh, which is that treasury.gov slash OFAC, and your name isn't on there and you provide that to the credit bureau, that's still not good enough to get it off if it's not really on there? Well, amazingly enough, what they argued is it's not actually a credit report. (laughs) They made a number of... um, really incredible arguments about how even if it's printed on your credit report, it somehow technically doesn't fall within that definition. Well, if it, if it applies to your character, yes, it does, because a, a consumer report under the Fair Credit Reporting Act, it, you know, includes anything that, that affects your character. So if there's a lien, you know, by the IRS on there, that's considered, if that's erroneous, they have to take that off. You know what I mean? So, right. Uh, yeah. No, that's absolutely right, and I, I think this is an, a losing argument for them, and, and that's why, you know, in the first of these cases, uh, you know, they did lose on it, but they have held to that position that, you know, we get this information from a third company, uh, you, you know, a, a software third program. Party, it's yeah. not a third party. It's not housed on our own database. It's housed somewhere else. You know, there are a number of arguments they always say that. Made. Yeah, they always say that, that this isn't ours. They used to say that even with the creditors. Well, if the creditors um, are saying that, um, if, for example, if a, if a person's a victim of fraud 
and they uh, claim that it's fraud and they do what they're supposed to do and they complain to the credit bureaus. The credit bureaus have to remove it within 30 days if it can't be verified by the credit card companies. You know what I'm saying? They just have to remove it. So if it's not right. verified, they have to remove it. And if it is verified, even when there's a police report, um, then they still have to remove it. So it looks like we have to do something like that to get some of these laws, at least under the Fair Credit Reporting Act, to include this, because anything that appears in your credit report is going to affect your character. Absolutely. And these people are denied a home, a place to live, a, right. a bank account, a credit card. This is this is insane. So let's talk about why we're getting such um, adhesion to this to these stupid rules by private companies um, like the credit reporting agencies and and other businesses and and realtors and uh, maybe lenders. So why are they involved? In review, I mean, why are they so worried about adhering to this information? What are they uh, going to be fined by the government if they do uh, provide some service or some product to someone who's uh, on the list or someone whose name is similar on the list? What's going to happen to these businesses if they don't comply? Right. So I think there there are a couple of things going on. One is that for, for the credit reporting agencies, so again, TransUnion and companies like that, uh, they have a financial interest in marketing these products. And oh, yeah. So I think for them, that's, that's why they're doing it. They, you know, it's, it's a service that they're providing um, that gets them money. Uh, for the businesses that are actually screening against the list and using these products, I think there is... Um, there is a fear of g- getting penalized by the government, and in fact, if you do do business with someone on the list, even if it is inadvertent, uh, you can be subjected to criminal to civil penalties. And if it's uh, proved to be a knowing violation, then there's even more in the way of criminal penalties involved. Uh, so, so, so let because, me ask you. So, so let's go back to that. So, in other yeah. words, if you negligently, if you didn't check that list and you did business with them, let's say you, um, you know, you rented an apartment to somebody. And um, you didn't check that list. You, you saw their credit report, and, and, it, and you didn't see it on their credit report, let's say. Or you didn't check their credit report. Um, and so you did that. For negligent um, renting to someone who's on that list or that appears on the, similar to that list, you can be fined how much? That's right. Uh, the fines vary, but per, you know, per violation, uh, it depends. It, the reason it's, it's hard to put a, a single figure to it is that each of the many laws that are uh, the basis for this list have uh, different amounts. So, you know, there are some laws in which, you know, the penalties are uh, many millions of dollars for Ooh. violations of those laws. Um, it, it depends on each uh, particular prohibition. Uh, but you know, the, uh, the, the companies are, are scared of, of this happening, and so that's why they're going ahead and checking the list. And I think you know, from our perspective, it, it is ultimately the government's responsibility. Um, there are businesses that are misapplying the list. They don't really know what they're doing. They're victimizing innocent people. But the, uh, you know, the primary uh, responsibility lies, we think, at the door of the government for creating a system that is this overbroad, um, for encouraging screening in industries and circumstances where there's little nexus to national security, uh, and then and not do, providing any safeguards uh, in the process. Right. So it's so ambiguous. So a business, let's say they know that they better do this. Let's say their attorney said, you better screen this list because you could be, you know, liable for damages. So they screen the list and they don't even have any guidelines. That's right. That's right, and and they don't have guidelines as a whole. And then you know, certainly, often the frontline salespeople who are conducting the screening, they may or may not have been trained. So you know, the you know, the mistakes and the potential for abuse can happen at uh, at many different levels. Uh, I also wanted to mention that while there are severe penalties for uh, inadvertent or for transactions uh, with people on the list, the the actual risk seems to be rather low for most businesses. And again, I go back to the fact that very, very few of the individuals on this list are even in the U.S. Right. So if you're, you know, if you're in the corner deli or the exercise store, your chance of actually encountering someone on this list is incredibly, incredibly minute. Right. Um, so I think there's a lot of over, um, just a, you know, almost paranoia right. and lack of understanding, too, um, that's leading businesses to, you know, to do this screening when, when the actual chance of, of uh, uh, not complying with the law or, or ending up doing business with someone on the list is very small. 
You know, you brought up about the, the the nexus to to actual terrorism. Let's talk about that. You know, what is the trade-off? I think in the name of security, we have been subjected to a lot of civil rights abuses, you know, since 9-11. And obviously, we want to protect the security of our people, but we want to do it in a way that's really working. So let's talk a little bit about more. With the concern for terrorism, uh, what is the trade-off on these lists? Is there really a trade-off that's that's worth it? Well, I think whenever you have a watch list, there's a potential for abuse because you're uh, you're linking consequences to name similarities. But uh, there are watch lists. I think the range of circumstances in which watch lists can be used vary greatly. So, for instance, while most of us would agree that it perhaps uh, in certain you know, high-value fin- financial transactions, if the government has determined that there is a very uh, a clear risk of uh, terrorist financing in particular circumstances, having some sort of screening pr- uh, program with uh, clear uh, checks and balances to prevent civil rights violations may be appropriate. Right. But when you have a list like this that's being essentially unleashed across the economy um, without it being linked to demonstrated uh, nexus to terrorist financing, which is you know, the, the actual uh, purpose or intended goal of the list, then you have a lot of situations where you're not gaining any benefit to national security, but you're in the process of victimizing people's rights. So, right. know, again, and then it also the dilutes. Store. Yeah, and then it also dilutes the FBI and whoever else is investigating these. It dilutes their ability to really focus in on the important terrorist activities, Absolutely. because there's so much diversion for all this stuff that's that's really non-existent. Right. You know, I mean, if you're if you're really like you said, if if they're very clear about high-dollar transactions that could be very dangerous or big money laundering for drug groups from Colombia or something. Okay, that that does make sense. But there is, uh, because there's such a lack of guidelines, and it sounds like it was kind of thrown together hodgepodge. You're talking about a bunch of laws and different executive orders, and everybody just goes on this, gets dumped into this list without any real clarification of, how you discern whether somebody's really on that list or not. I think that's right, and I think to some extent the government may not even have realized what it was doing, for example, when um, President Bush uh, enacted that executive order uh, in the first place. Because when you look at even the press releases and the government's public explanation of uh, the executive order in September 2001 that led to a lot of names on this list, all the explanations had to do with financial institutions and regulating uh, or curtailing terrorist financing. Right. Uh, and it didn't even seem that the government was really aware that this list would uh, spread to being used by all sorts of other segments of society. Right, mortgage point, companies, you know, so somebody can't get a house. Yeah. Right, right. And the Treasury Department, I think, is responsible now for encouraging even employers to check this list. So, mm. you know, it's, it's getting quite widespread, but I'm not even sure that initially when it, uh, you know, the executive order was passed, they realized just how widespread um, use it would ultimately end up having. What a great power they've achieved from this. And, you know, it's who is in charge of this list? I mean, who is in charge of this program, this OFAC list? There's an agency called OFAC, the Office of Foreign Assets Control, within the Treasury Department, and they're responsible for this particular list. And, and who is the one who is heading that department? Well, the, the Secretary of the Treasury is Henry Paulson. Uh, there's also a director for OFAC. It's changed a couple of times in the last few years. Uh, so those you know, those are the individuals who are responsible. So is is that who testified in Congress when there was a, a congressional hearing about this? The, it, it was actually Secretary Paulson who was speaking at the hearing. The, the hearing was an appropriations hearing, so it concerned a number of issues related to the Treasury Department uh, and Senator Durbin question Secretary Paulson on this issue, uh, as, me- as well as a number of other issues relating to the department. Right. Goodness, it seems that there should be a congressional hearing just on this, and just to bring this whole slew of, of victims who have gone through these horrendous situations. So, that's right, and that's one of the things we uh, continue to ask for. Right, right. So what can an ordinary person do to deal with this practice and now that they're listening if they're listening and become aware and say oh my gosh people feel so i think really disempowered when things like this are going on you know like what can i do about this what would you suggest 
I think one of the most important things, as simple as it sounds, is for people to voice their opinions to members of Congress. Uh, it is really, really important for people in power to hear people's concerns on these issues. And particularly if people have experienced this or know somebody who has, getting out those stories publicly and to our leaders is really important. One of the challenges we've faced with this issue is that uh, it's incredibly stigmatizing. And a number of people who had really uh, you know, horrific stories of what they had experienced as a result of this list um, were simply unwilling to come forward. And even if they would be anonymous, they're, you know, they just felt that anything I do can trigger more stigma, you know, more humiliation and retaliation. Exactly. Even I mean, it's, it's such a privacy invasion and in that they've already felt their privacy invaded and they're afraid to go out there. And then who knows what might happen if they go out there and, and explain what happened. Exactly. And, yes. You know, so that stigma is great. And on the other hand, as advocates, we know that it's incredibly important for people to uh, step forward and share those experiences because I, I think it's only in connecting to the real stories of what's happening that uh, people as a whole and, and our government uh, will change its practices. Right. You have a wonderful website, AsianLockCaucus.org. And I wonder, I don't know if you've ever seen like um, the consumer, um, what is it? Now I'm, my mind just went blank. But the um, the Consumer Reports has a has a website where they will prepare letters and then you just change the letter and it goes automatically to your senator. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen those. And, and the same thing with um, PERG, U.S. PERG. But you might want to consider creating some letters that people could just go to the website and then they put in their uh, zip code and it pulls up their congresspeople and then they can change the letter a little bit and sign it, and then it goes right through your website. That's a way to do it, because my experience with trying to get people to write letters is that it is very time-consuming, and, you know, just to look something up and to write the letters, and they don't feel comfortable writing, they don't know exactly what to say, they don't know really what the issues are. But if, if your website would put something together, then people could just go there and amend the letter a little bit and then send it right from your website. I think you could find that a lot more people will be more willing to, to, make, to do those letters. And I think phone calls are, are helpful, but I think a letter is far more impactful. That's so, a fantastic idea. Yeah, and you might want to look at consumersunion.org. They do that, and financialprivacy.org. Um, I have had on people from, you know, from Consumers Union on, and I know I go there, even though I can write a letter and I do often write letters and I testify in Congress, I go and I use those letters because it it only takes me a hop, skip, and a jump to do it, you know? So you might want to consider that because I think that all of us should be writing these letters. It's like, you know, if we don't say something now, we could be the next ones, right? That, absolutely. Yeah. So, um let me ask you something. What about when people, uh, what about at the national borders? Or do they have problems when they try to leave the country or come back in? What happens? That's exactly a problem that we are seeing right now. In fact, we're getting a slew of complaints about this by American citizens, uh, as well as immigrants who travel abroad and come back to the U.S. And when they come back, uh, they find that every time they, they return to the country, they are detained, searched, and questioned. Um, and apparently because their names are linked to uh, a database, a separate database from the list we've been talking about uh, that the U.S. Customs and Border Protection is checking. And as a result, you know, each time they're subjected to uh, incredibly intrusive uh, questioning to searches, their laptop files are looked at. Uh, if they're carrying books, you know, the agents are literally looking at all the books. Their notes are examined. Uh, and they're asked questions like, uh, what do you think about the war in Iraq? What mosque do you worship at? Um, you know, who do you know? Who, uh, name all 20 people that you may have met on your international travels. And essentially, these are individuals who are not linked to any suspicious activity, but again, whose names are either misidentified uh, because someone else with a similar name is on the list, or uh, who for whatever reason have been added to the list and can't, they can't challenge the basis for their being on it. Wow. So this is are the this is the you said this is the US Customs and Border Protection list. Now that list is that really uh using the list from the OFAC list or are they using the TSA list or are all three combined? How is this working with all these private 
in, and uh, hidden lists. Yeah, there are many, many different lists used by the government right now. The Customs and Border Protection database is very similar to that used by the TSA. They come from um, basically a common source now, which is a terrorist screening center uh, in Washington, D.C. Uh, it's an entirely separate database, though, from the, the OFAC Treasury Department list that we were talking about earlier. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So they have different lists, but some people will be on both lists. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, some people might uh, be on both lists. And actually, just a point that I wanted to make, you know, we were talking a lot earlier about credit reports and, you know, how hard it is to get incorrect information taken out. Right. So, you know, what we're finding with the Customs and Border Protection database is that there are a lot of people who actually may be included in this list, but who shouldn't be on it. And it may be something uh, in their past that, uh, they are had, were improperly put on this list in the first place. It may have been, for example, um, you know, some neighbor or acquaintance saying, you know, I, I saw four Middle Eastern guys in an apartment and they were meeting. And, you know, as a result of a racially based comment, somehow someone is called to the attention of the FBI. Uh, they end up in this list. They were not involved in anything wrongful. But just like it's difficult to, you know, to change something that's in your credit report, even when you're on the right, you have no way of contesting that information, of saying this is, you know, this is absurd that this should have led me to be put on a watch list. So we're finding that bad information is leading to people to be in this database. And once you get in, it's really, really difficult to get out. And, you know, Shireen, when you're talking about, you know, even how hard it is on a credit report, at least with a credit report, we have laws under the Fair Credit Reporting Act that we have transparency. We get to see our credit report and we can get it for free once a year you know, from each of the three major credit bureaus at annualcreditreport.com. But we don't have a right to see these lists. You know, you talked about the Treasury list, but do we have a right to see this customs and border list? No. It, yeah. It, you so can't it's not transparent. It. So you can't even, you don't even know what's on there. Right. And, then, and the same thing with the TSA. You can't see the list. Absolutely. And you don't know why you're on there. And, you, and it's, it's hard to get off. I mean, this is, we're, we're getting more and more databases. And we're speaking with Shireen Sinar, who is fascinating. She is an attorney with the Asian Law Caucus. And she wrote a report in March of 2007 that I read recently. It's called The OFAC List, How a Treasury Department Terrorist Watch List Ensnares Everyday Consumers. And this is actually called the No, no Buy List. We've had the No Fly List. We got the No Buy List. And then we have this other one, no come in the country list. You know? <laughs> I don't know. We have to make a way to make that rhyme, too. No fly, no buy, no no whatever. But um, so how about these? So we have all these false positives, right, of people being mistakenly linked on the list. And then I bet we have false negatives where <laughs> where people might be getting in that shouldn't be getting in, but they're, but they're assuming somebody else's identity, so they get in, you know? That may be happening, and I, I think it goes back to something we talked about earlier, which is that when you have overbroad screening measures uh, like the ones we're talking about that don't that aren't narrowly focused enough to deal with the actual threats, you're really in a position uh, where you, you're not focusing on the actual threats you should be looking at because uh, you know, you're you scattered and your attention is uh, scattered right. on a right. lot of people who shouldn't be. Um, and you, know, and, 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 you know, when you think about 9-11 and a lot of this, really, the, the, the paranoia and the, and the fears, and some of them are really legitimate because we all want security after 9-11. But if you think about the 9-11 terrorists, over half of them had committed total identity takeover, all right? And then the rest of them had false documents that they were using that weren't in their name. They, you know, and so if you're going to do everything by name... That is that may not be the answer because people can commit identity theft so easily. Hmm. That's a really good point. Yeah. So so what do you advise people to do um, if they're having a problem at the airport or at the U.S. border? What what kind of advice can you give them? I think one of the most important things is for people to reach out to members of Congress. And I know that that sounds like well, how is that going to help me uh, right now for my immediate situation? And I think, you know, I can't stress enough how important it is that we have a political solution to this, because quite honestly, 
uh, if you try to, you know, people often go to lawyers for solutions and they say, okay, well, let me sue the government. I'm not on any list. I'm having these problems. Um, You you know, fix it. And really, it's going to take a broader systemic policy change to to really solve these things. So so that's the first point. The second point is with problems at the airport, there is now a a program that the Homeland Security has set up. Uh, The website is www.dhs.gov slash trip. And the government has set that up uh, supposedly in order to enable individuals who are repeatedly having problems while they're traveling uh, to, to make a complaint about it. And the government says it will reassess their, uh, their inclusion. Now, uh, th- there are very mixed reviews for this program. A number of people have done it or done, gone through earlier versions of the same program and said it hasn't helped. Uh, but for some people, it may have a benefit. So, so that's another option for individuals having these travel problems. You know, when you talk about having a political solution, what I've learned in my old age, and you probably would agree with me, but you're younger, (laughs) is that, you know, being a lawyer for all these years and seeing how, yes, I mean, there are some really important things that happen through litigation, but I think the faster way to go uh, is really to get a lot of publicity so everybody gets embarrassed and then they have to do something. You know, if it's on 60 Minutes or if it's on... You know, our little show, at least we're bringing this to the forefront. You know, I mean, I'm sitting here with Lloyd. He didn't know about the OFAC list, right? So we're, we're at least enlightening people. And the more we enlighten, the more we get some media coverage about it, the more that that's going to put pressure on these um, politicians. And, the, and then they'll call for hearings, just like your report initiated some real movement. So, you know, I applaud you for that report because that got people looking at it and and someone like me to say, hey, come on the show. So let's talk about some of the great recommendations that you had. You have a whole list of them here. You want to go through some of these? Sure. Um, One of the things that we have asked for, um, as we mentioned earlier, is uh, congressional oversight over the program. Uh, But more specifically, uh, we'd like to see OFAC screening uh, prohibited in circumstances where there isn't a compelling and demonstrated link to national security. Right. So this goes back to the idea that where there's no nexus, you shouldn't be screening at all. And then even if screening does continue in some limited sectors of the economy, there must be clear safeguards in place. So you, you need any businesses that are doing this, tr- uh, this type of screening need to have mandatory training on the potential civil rights violations and how to avoid them. Uh, you need to have the, the vendors of these OFAC screening softwares and the credit agencies held accountable uh, for mistakes in their products or overbroad um, flagging of innocent consumers. Right. And you need a way for individuals to obtain redress if they have been mistakenly flagged as being on a list. And you have to have that transparency where they can see it because they can't get any redress if they don't know what, what they're on there. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. Go ahead. There's, so, you, have, you have many. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, that's fine. That that covers some of the um, the the important recommendations to you know for both the the screening itself to be limited uh, and then for accountability to be um, brought to essentially each level at which the screening is taking place. So whether it's the, the private vendors of the software um, that are creating these programs that are then being used by businesses, um, or whether it's the businesses themselves. Um, we'd like to see uh, measures to uh, to bring safeguards to each of those levels. You know, this this really is interesting because this relates to what we've been talking about so many times on this show, that we have a Fair Credit Reporting Act that really applies to the credit reporting agencies and the whole credit issue and, and the credit report. The real scary stuff is that we have data brokers that are out there that buy these various lists or compile their own and sell them to the government. And there's no oversight for those when we're talking about LexisNexis or ChoicePoint or Axiom. They're, except for the minute area that is, um, you know, uh, the oversight of the Fair Credit Reporting Act, really and truly there is no oversight for data brokers. And the data brokers can sell this information as well. I think that's right, and I think what's particularly scary is that they, they evade 
a number of controls that are put in place. So, you know, as you said, they may not be covered in some cases by the Fair Credit Reporting Act. At the same time, because they're private entities, they're not covered by the Privacy Act and the other rules that bind government in its data collection. So they're kind of, you know, they're in the middle, and they, and they can do a lot of things, collect a lot of information improperly without the safeguards that apply to credit agencies or the government itself. Right, right. And let, that's, that's the whole idea of transparency. You and I don't know what are on all of these background checks, Right. And, right. and and we don't necessarily, you know, California, we have better laws than the rest of the country. But there should be, in my view, when anyone does any kind of a check on you, I think you should automatically get a copy of what they've gotten, whether it's a credit report or a background check or a screening check. Anything that they, if they use a software other than TransUnion to, to see if you're on some terror, terrorist list, you should be able to get a copy of that right away. Right. But that, that that hasn't happened. We only have how much time, Lloyd? He's given me a sign. Okay, we have a few more minutes. I want to, since we're sitting here on the campus of the University of California, and there are many people who are interested in these issues and concerned. So, how can students here at UCI get involved? And are there internships with with uh, the Asian Law Caucus? What what can they do to maybe get involved? We do have internships, uh, both in the summer and during the semesters, for college students uh, as well as law students. So we, uh, we as a nonprofit, we uh, really depend on and get a lot of value from the students who help, uh, help us with our, our projects. So they should go to AsianLawCaucus.org if they're interested, right? Right. They can uh, go to our website. They can also call us directly at uh, 415-896-1701. Um, but they can certainly ch- ch- find out all of our information from our website. And we have a lot of business people driving by. You know, this is 5 to 6 p.m. dinner time when people are going home. What should businesses do if they're worried about having to screen and they're worried about potential employees and dealing with these issues? Um, what should they do so that, they, you know, they're kind of caught in the middle? Let's say they want to protect civil rights and they want to protect their potential employees and their customers and their consumers, but at the same time, they don't want to get fined by the government. So what should they be doing? I think businesses, first of all, should uh, not overreact to the concerns about uh, compliance leading to trans- uh, to penalties by the government. And you know, once again, the risk for most businesses of actually dealing with someone on this list is very minute. So they should, you know, talk to their attorney, uh, but for the most part, most businesses are not really in an imminent danger of being fined by the government. Uh, so they should keep that in mind, you know, first and foremost. If they are doing any type of screening, they really ought to make sure that they're training their employees uh, well and that they realize the risk of uh, civil rights violations uh, and that they know the uh, the commonness of, of false positives arising from this list or, or any others. Yeah, you know, this whole thing just reminds me of the McCarthy era, like you had talked about. It's really scary, you know. People on the list, they're not communists, they're terrorists, they're not even really terrorists, and everybody's, you know, supposed to be screening and accusing. It's, uh, we, should have, we should be learning from this, right? Uh, very much so. <laughs> Unfortunately, it seems that, you know, in times of fear and national security, crises or threats, um, unfortunately, we seem to go back on some of the values that um, you know, this country really is about. Uh, I think it just calls on the need for us to, you know, to be vigilant about protecting our civil liberties in times of fear. Right. Just, we have about another minute left. I'd like you to just explain some of the other wonderful projects that you do at the Asian Law Caucus. So if anybody is interested, they can visit, uh, visit the AsianLawCaucus.org and they can get involved or contribute. Or it's a, it's a very good cause. You do great work. So tell us some of the other things that your, your uh, organization is doing. Uh, thank you. Uh, we work on a lot of issues affecting uh, primarily low-income Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders, and other immigrant communities. So some of our work has to do with housing displacement for low-income folks in San Francisco. Uh, we also work in industries like the nail salon industries, uh, industry, which is largely Vietnamese, where there are uh, numerous workplace health and safety challenges. Uh, we work on immigration reform. So there are a range of issues that uh, we're currently engaged in, essentially protecting the legal and civil rights of uh, Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders, and, and all of us. 
Well, Shireen, they are so lucky to have you. Uh, that's for sure. You're a wonderful asset to the Asian Law Caucus. And we are so grateful for you coming on. And thank you so much for writing your report, and the OFAC list. And that's available on your website, right? The OFAC list, how a Treasury Department terrorist watch list ensnares everyday consumers. Is that on your, that's on your website, isn't that's it? That's on the website of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, which is the, the publisher of the report. It's at www lccr.com. Right, and it's a great report. Very, It's actually terrifying, so I'm so glad that you came on. Thank you again, Shireen, and we will talk soon. Keep up that wonderful work, and uh, we want everybody to visit asianlawcaucus.org. Thank you, Shireen. Thank you so much, Mari. Okay, take care. You've been listening to Shireen Sinar, who is a staff attorney at the Asian Law Caucus. We've been talking about the new watch list. Well, it's not so new, but it's about the scary watch list of OFAC. And you've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. To learn more about our previous guests, you can listen to previous interviews, download podcasts, subscribe to our podcasts, and write us emails, see our upcoming guests. We'd love to have you uh, contact us at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Thank you, Lloyd. Great engineer. Good night. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.